Now, I read an interesting fact. A rattlesnake, if cornered, will sometimes become so angry it will bite itself. Now, exactly what happens when we harbor hate and resentment against others, the venom flows out of our hearts and we think we're harming others by withholding forgiveness or love or whatever it is we're doing on the inside by hating. Uh, but the real harm, of course, is done to ourselves, as we're going to see tonight yet again in the scriptures here in the 16th chapter of Second Samuel. You know, no matter how long you nurse a grudge, um, it doesn't get any better. Um, like it says in Hebrews chapter 12, It says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now listen to that. Don't don't just let it go in one ear and out the other. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. The Greek word for defile there uh, is very interesting. It means to dye something a different color or to stain something. And so by our bitterness and our words and our angry uh, behavior, that when we give way to those kinds of things, that we stain those around us, we, the, the other rendering is to pollute or to corrupt or to destroy, actually. And so bitterness will hurt you and many others. And here in the latter reign of King David's life, uh, there are two men that don't get that. And even if they did get it, they wouldn't care. Um, the two bitter hearts unite. And you know what? The saying, misery loves companies, and so does bitterness. Uh, Bitter people are attracted to one another. They find someone who shares their negativity, and uh, they kind of feed off of one another. And uh, tonight we're going to see two men do exactly that, and they're going to destroy themselves. They both end up dead. And and so do 20,000 other men end up in the same way, because they are stained. They are dyed another color. And you know what that color is? Scarlet red, blood red, because two guys couldn't get over their hate, their bitterness. They had been wronged in life, and who hasn't? But the way they dealt with it was to fester and nurture hate and anger and bitterness and uh, unforgiveness. And so who are these two men? Well, I'm glad you asked. You always do. Uh, Absalom, the king's son, King David's boy, and Ahithophel, King David's longtime friend, who was his chief counselor for many, many years. So the first guy's Absalom, just setting the stage so we can pick up where we left off. Absalom is King David's fabulously handsome son, uh, power hungry, in love with himself, proud as a peacock, holds grudges. You know, back in the day, his sister was violated in a terrible way, and David, his father, didn't handle it the way that Absalom thought he should. And so he took aggressive action himself. And even though Absalom murdered the guy, 
the perpetrator. Even though we murdered him, it didn't fix the problem. It doesn't fix the problem. Acting on our lusts only throws fuel on the fire. The fire keeps burning. So the disdain for his father uh, grows into a murderous plot to kill him and to take Israel's throne. That's Absalom. The other bitter soul is Ahithophel. Uh, The Bible says that besides Solomon, he was like one of the most gifted and wise men in the Old Testament. In fact, later tonight in the verse, it will tell us that hearing from him was like speaking to God directly. You could get an answer from this man as if God were giving you the answer uh, himself. But he goes sour. Here's a bad, a bad example of a man who, who starts well and has a poor finish. He's very, uh, and where does it go bad? It goes bad when David violates his granddaughter, Bathsheba, and his grandson-in-law, Uriah. He faked a relationship with David for maybe 10 years Following that incident, they were best friends, and he was his number one. Ahithophel was David's number one counselor, and never let on that within his heart, he held this tremendous hatred and anger and was waiting for the day that some other bitter soul would hook up with him. There'd be a phone call, and there'd be a meeting of the bitter minds, and then they could uh, plot David's despair. Uh, demise together and so that day came the plot took shape and now for context uh, Absalom wants the throne Uh, he David occupies it so he's got to get rid of David his own father and so first he had to garner the support and so Absalom the son has kind of slithered his way into the hearts of Israel uh, by slandering his father and then uh, flattering his way into the national favor of uh, all the men and uh, dividing God's people so he steals the hearts of Israel and he makes his move to overthrow his father and remember how he did it Last chapter, he goes to Hebron where David was made king and he uh, proclaims himself king, but he doesn't do it alone. He takes 200 guys, unbeknownst to them, in some kind of deceptive plot. He invites 200 key, wise, strategic military men from David to go with him to Hebron behind the wall city and holds them hostage so that when he proclaims himself king, and comes back to attack his father and the palace, those 200 men make a credible uh, response impossible. And so that's where we're at. David now has heard about this, and uh, he considers the best option of taking his family and about a 1,000 loyal staffers and soldiers to flee Jerusalem, to go down the brook of Kidron, and then up Mount Olives and over the summit into the wilderness. That's where they're headed. And they're running for their lives because they know Absalom is capable of murder. And that indeed is true. So we're going to pick up in 16 here. Uh, When we last heard, David and the crew are fleeing, uh, and they're on top of the Mount of Olives there. And they're in great distress. They're mourning. David's weeping. I mean, can you imagine? And then uh, last thing we heard, 
one of David's best friends, his, his royal advisor, a different guy than Ahithophel. His name is Hushai. He shows up and he says, hey man, David, I'm with you. Let's, let's, uh, I'm fleeing with you. Uh, what can I do? And David says, Hushai, I need you to make a U-turn. Go back to the palace and pretend you're going to be loyal to my son Absalom. And Ahithophel is there going to give him all this advice. But I want you to act like a double agent. I want you to frustrate the, the uh, advice that Ahithophel will be giving. So if you could pull it off, and if you don't mind, if you could go down there and do that, that would be more worthwhile than having you here where I have to worry about your life. So Hushai does a U-turn on the top of the Mount of Olives and goes back down a mile. That's all, all that's gone on is about a mile and a half. And he goes back down, and just in time, he's going to run in, we're going to see, to Absalom. He's going to have to fake like he's defecting over to get into the good graces and not get himself killed uh, with Absalom. So, one through four. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins and a hundred summer fruits and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Mephibosheth. Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Well, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage, I bow down. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. So let's pause there. Roman numeral number one, throwing salt in the wound. Now, this chapter, chapter 16, I would call an expose on the wilds of Satan. How Satan likes to come in and take a bad situation and make it worse. That's kind of what he does. Uh, the devil prowls about like a roaring lion, according to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, looking for someone to devour the devil is a grand opportunist. And so here's somebody beloved of God, used by God, very important to God's people. And he's down and out. And so Satan sees an opportunity to make things more painful, more difficult, more complicated, more sorrowful. And that's really what he does. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, uh, the Bible says, Jesus says that the devil has come to kill steal and destroy. That is really his job description. He's always scheming. He's looking for a foothold. In fact, in, in Ephesians chapter four, it tells us don't give the devil a foothold. You know why? That's what he's looking for. He's looking for an open door and we're not to give him one. So David's world is turned upside down 
Can you imagine one morning he's eating his cinnamon toast crunch and uh, in the royal patio area, the harpist is playing and he's thinking about what his kingly duties are for the day. And in the evening, he's got his backpack, all his valuables and tent, and he's fleeing with a thousand people and all of his family from the likes of Absalom, who's got a murderous rage to kill him. Well, what a day. The, the, you know, the rug's pulled out from beneath him, and he's tired, he's crushed in spirit. He's, his mind is reeling, he's hungry, he's weary, he's at his worst. And of course, that's the time the enemy picks to come in and bring added discouragement. So the grand opportunist always comes along, and he's got always somebody, the devil does, doesn't he? Always has somebody willing to do his work for him. Since the devil is invisible to us, he needs a human body and a human mouth and a tongue to actually spit out that slander. So enter Ziba. Now, I've got to explain the little story back in in chapter 9 so you understand what's going on here. You'll recall that in a beautiful move of mercy, King David, for no other reason other than he loved his best friend Jonathan, wanted to find out if Jonathan, who passed away, had any children or descendants who he could just be kind to for the sake of the memory of Jonathan. And so Ziba, who is in charge of Saul's estate, comes in and says, well, there is one guy. Uh, He has a son, but he's crippled in both of his legs. He's really no good for anybody. But Ziba was in charge of Mephibosheth, the son. But David took Mephibosheth and turned it around and said, I give you the whole estate. You are now sitting at my table eating dinner with me. I've promoted you to a royal dignitary. And Ziba with his 15 sons and his 20 servants now serve the crippled boy. And he wasn't very happy about that. He lost everything to the guy he had disdain for with the two crippled feet. And so here's what happened. They're crossing into Benjamin territory now up over the summit, and they're coming into Saul's neck of the woods, all right? And so here's Ziba, who's related to Saul, and uh, Ziba hears David's plight, and so he's a deceitful, scheming opportunist, and so here are the opening verses says that he comes bearing gifts, but he also bearing something else, lies, lies about the crippled boy, who now is his master. He's going to slander him. David has two questions, and so we see that David right away is suspicious because he says, why have you brought these? Uh, By the mere question, you know he's suspicious because why wouldn't he just look and say, oh, man, thanks. Obviously, we're running for our lives. We don't have much. We need to be refreshed. We're all hungry. We're starving. So he asks the question. He wants to know, why? What's up with you? What's up with this? Why are you out here? What's motivating you suddenly to come bearing gifts? And, and he says, uh, you all must be so weary. Uh, let me help you, refreshing you all. Fresh baked bread, a skin of wine, cakes of raisins, luscious summer fruit, just picked for you, the Lord, my king. Anything to serve you guys. All right. 
Question number two then comes out of David's lips. Uh, where's Mephibosheth? Oh, him. Well, it pains me to say that even though you've been over backwards for this crippled guy who could have been executed, really, you had the right to execute him, you bent over backwards. You put him at your own table. You gave him everything. And you know what he says? He says, I say to him, hey, I'm reading into this a little bit. I say to him, hey, you want to go and accompany David? And you know what he says? You know, are you kidding me? This is my big lucky day. I'm going to get even more now that David's gone. And I'm going to get my whole estate. Well, I don't know how much was left. David kind of gave it to him. But, you know, that's what he's saying. He's slandering him. He's lying. And you know how we know he's lying? Chapter 19 coming up and verses 24 through 30 is going to tell us that here's the truth what happened. Mephibosheth gives orders. But the crippled boy tells his servant Zeba, saddle up the donkeys. I'm going with the king. And Mephibosheth and Ziba says, like, that's going to happen, crippled boy. And Ziba gets on the donkeys, and he's crippled. He he can't do anything. He's got 15 strong boys, too. (laughs) Hold him back, and I'll go take care of this, because i got a little kissing up to do to the king and see if we can slander Mephibosheth and get it reversed. Unfortunately, it worked. It worked. That's too bad. And David's going to find out. He's going to modify the arrangement. But for the moment, it worked. David's hurt by this, you know. Um, G. Campbell Morgan put it this way about this whole Ziba thing. This report, this slander, hurt David because at the time of the crisis, the last thing you want to hear is that another person has turned against you, especially when you've sacrificed and bet over backwards to bless that person, he and the devil who inspired him delight in bringing sorrow to David's heart. Is there anything worse than unrequited love? Unrequited love means that you love someone and they don't love you back. Is there anything worse than that? Nothing worse than that. And when you've been good to someone and they turn around and stab you in the back, Oh, the devil just loved delivering that lie to him. David, on top of weeping and having his, he can't even see straight. He has to hear that. Ouch. So David's vulnerable. He falls for it. That's too bad. You know, he says, fine. He acts. He reacts. He's not just acting. He's reacting. This is the problem. Listen to that. It's not a good thing to react rashly. You know, and so he says in a snap judgment, okay, let's reverse the deal. It's all yours, Ziba. Oh, you're back in control, buddy. And the cripple boy's at your service. And how did Ziba really kind of refrain from showing his uh, demonic delight that his plan uh, worked like a charm? And he says, I humbly bow. May I always find favor in the sight of my Lord and my king. You're the best king ever. Oh, gag me. Go ahead and say it. Gag me. Go ahead and gag me. Seriously. All right. So David violates two principles here. Listen to them. Spouting 
off before listening to all the facts is shameful and foolish. Proverbs 18, 13. And then a few verses after that, there's a really good one too. The one who states his case first always seems right until the other one comes in and cross-examines him. You know, don't make your decisions when somebody comes up and says, so-and-so did this, so-and-so did that, so-and-so thinks this about you. Wait until you get to so-and-so. Bring so-and-so in. Call so-and-so. Take so-and-so out to lunch and find out and say to so-and-so, you know what, so-and-so the other so-and-so <laughs> said such and such about you, so-and-so. <laughs> did you follow that? I did too. I'm amazed. All right, moving on. Three valuable takeaways already. All right, so let's get them. Number one, when you're down, watch out for spiritual attacks. Use faith, and faith will extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one. You need faith. When you're down and out, the arrows are going to fly. They're going to hit you and they're going to burn. And Paul says, you just use a little faith. You'll put those things out. And the second thing I see here is when you haven't heard both sides, could you just wait? Just wait. Hear the other side. Oh, that, that's a big mistake. And number three, be on your guard for zibas. Because they, <laughs> they manipulate, they get what they want, they flatter you, they slander somebody else, they build you up, or they tear somebody down. But you know what? It's also that they can get what they want. Let's continue on because the devil has another servant in place to take care of some more flaming arrows. Verses 5 through 14. Now when King David came to Bahurim... There came out a man, here comes number two, of the family of the house of Saul, because we were in Saul's neighborhood, whose name was Shimei. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of the king. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, who's David's nephew and general, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Hmm. Abishai has got an attitude. But the king said, what am I to do with you? If he's cursing because the Lord told him to curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, listen, my own kid wants to kill me. How much more than this guy who's related to Saul, this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones like a little girl. Sorry. (laughs) 
I just added that little fart in there, at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. So uh, we see evil at work was number one, right, was pouring salt in the wound, and I've named this one uh, now adding insult to injury. So yet another, um, another dynamic of the evil one. Don't we have here the slanderer? Uh, the word, the Greek word for Satan and devil is diabolos, and it uh, means to slander. And now the slanderer has found a mouthpiece in the Shimei guy. It's a relative, a distant relative of Saul. And so he still resents that David replaced the, um, Saul's dynasty, the whole family went from being, oh, I'm related to Saul. If you had Saul's last name and Saul's the king, you're, you're in. And now David ruined everything, right? And so he's got a, Shimei's got a chip on his shoulder for sure. Um, so um, as David and the large caravan pass through, Shimei is lurking in the shadows like all cowards do, and uh, verbally and physically assaulting the king uh, and all of his bodyguards there. And he's loaded with curses and stones and dirt and profanity and slander, and he just a steady barrage. Just ugly. Shimei's, they're nasty. Mean, spirited, cowardly people, and they're everywhere, unfortunately. Uh, notice he can't confront face to face. He has to hide in the shadows, and he has to throw stones and insults from a safe distance. So you, you can't really see who's doing it, and you can't really catch him. And he's in and out, darting in the shadows, and that's the way people like him kind of work. Uh, one commentator said, there are always people ready to rejoice when a leader falls. Shimei had this heart against David for a long time, but he could only show it when David was down and out. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite all-time preachers from the uh, 1800s there in Great Britain, he said, nothing is lower than a coward who kicks a man when he's down. Now, Shimei's blaming David for all of uh, Saul's problems and all of the bloodshed in Saul's family, quite a bit. But it had nothing to do with David. But he's get, giving David the blame because Saul caused Saul's problems. And the demise of Saul's dynasty was directly related to Saul himself. So Shimei was wrong because David actually treated Saul and his family with great love and graciousness. Shimei was wrong because David was not a bloodthirsty man. He was a man of war, but he wasn't bloodthirsty. Shimei was wrong because David did not bring Saul and his family to ruin. Saul did not, as I mentioned. And Shimei was right when he said that the Lord had allowed this to come upon David, but not for any of the reasons Shimei thought. Now, David models for us here in verses 9 through 12 how to get through a crisis and, and how to deal with somebody who's uh, denigrating you or insulting you or a thorn in your side. Three things 
brokenness, humility, and trust in God. So here's what we see. We see a contrast between David's godly attitude towards suffering and enduring slander and, and, and hearing hurtful things. We see his godly Christ-like example contrasted with his hot-headed nephew, Abishai. So Abishai says what? He says, give me 30 seconds. I'll chop off his head. That'll stop the cursing just like that. Uh, that <laughs> and uh, you know that, that idiom really gets a lot of work in the Old Testament, the dead dog. They just, that was the lowest of low. It's like, I'm sorry, but calling somebody roadkill. You know, I mean, seriously, what, what's good with roadkill? There's just worthless, right? Is it most of the time? <laughs> Depending. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> All right, stop thinking. Okay. Uh, David says, so David... Instead of saying, I'm going to chop his head off in 30 seconds, I'll be holding it here, and we'll make his mouth go like this. No, David says, seriously, you want to prove him right? You want to prove him right? He's, he's telling us that we're murderous, no-principled, bloodthirsty men. You're going to go whack his head off and say, you're right. <laughs> We are. We're thirsty for blood, and you're on the menu tonight. Yeah, no. Or are you going to let my life deny the charges and vindicate my true character by the way I respond? Always remember when Shimei is giving you a hard time and cursing you out and humiliating you. He's humiliating him. He's the king of Israel. And these voices, you're to blame. The Lord's against you. You're good for nothing. You're a murderer. It's humiliating him. But you know what? When you respond in, in a like manner, you're just stooping to their level and you become like them. What's the difference between you going over and chopping his head off and, and what he's doing, you're on, you're, you're like connected to him and like mine. David's smarter than that. He says, look, guys, Absalom is the problem. This loser's inconsequential. Leave him be. What if God is behind it? What if God is using this to humble me? You know, I did do some terrible things. And there was a prophecy about God bringing down some chastisement on me. What if God's behind it, kind of helping me to get to where I need to be, Christ-like, like him? Here's David's logic. If I handle this guy the right way, God will take care of me in the long run. If I handle this situation that's hurting me, that's unjust, that's unfair, that's irritating, that's driving me crazy, making me angry, if I handle this right God will take care of me. God will work it out. That's his department. That's his job. But he's looking to me. Am I going to take matters in my own hands and act like an animal like them? Am I going to be unkind like they are and rude and insulting? Am I going to be just like them? Or am I going to be Christ-like and say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Because that's what you said when people were killing you. I'd rather be like the Lord. 
When they hurled insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23. Now, let me repeat that. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. In other words, let it go. Don't respond with threats. Trust God. God knows the truth. And David's really saying, I got nothing to prove. Uh, Being king wasn't my idea. So the one who put me here can keep me here. If the one who put me here doesn't want me here anymore, then, then maybe I don't need to be here anymore. Because this isn't my idea, and it's not my position. It's a position of stewardship that God gave me. And so he holds on to things with very loose grip. We all we just cling to this is mine, you can't take it. He's like, I'm over the hill. I'm already on to new horizons to see what God has for me over on the other side. So let's continue on because the devil's not done with his joyride and he's saving the best for last. So let's finish up verses 15 to the end. Now, meanwhile... Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem. So bad boy Absalom is now in the palace. All right, David fled. He's gone, but now Absalom's in house. And Ahithophel, the genius behind everything, was with him. Then Hushai, David's best friend, David's confidant, confidant, went to Absalom and said to him, long live the king, long live the king. Now, notice with me the mastery of Hushai's genius, because he's not ever going to lie. Just watch this. Long live the king, long live the king. David, in his mind, right? So Absalom says to Hushai, so this is how you show your love for your friend. If David, your friend, If David is your friend, then why didn't you go with him? Hushai says to Absalom, well, the one chosen by the Lord, by these people, and by all the men of Israel, his I will be, and I will remain with him. David. Because who else chose him? You know, listen, buddy, I'm loyal to the one God chose, these people elected, and by the men of Israel. That's who I belong to. Who's David, actually? Uh, He didn't come out and say that part. Verse 19. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve the son? Just as I served your father, so I'll serve you uh, in ways you may never realize (laughs) or understand. Uh, But I am serving you. (laughs) All right. Uh, Verse 20. Absalom said to Ahithophel. All right. So in other words, Hushai's got his place now, and he's to the side. But he's got another advisor who's more important. Absalom says to Ahithophel, give us your advice. What should we do? Ahithophel answers, sleep with your father's concubines whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you've made yourself obnoxious to your father and the hands of everyone with you will be more strengthened or resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Gag me. 
Now, in, yeah, that's a U, that's a U. Now, in those days, the advice of Ahithophel gave was like, sorry, the advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. All right, so finishing up here, evil at work. We've seen salt in the wound. That's the devil's fun thing to do. Uh, He also loves to add insult to injury or kick a guy or gal when they're down. And now number three is public humiliation. Nothing says satanic joy like public humiliation of God's leaders and God's people. And so here's a, a masterpiece of perversion. Ahithophel has been nurturing this bitterness toward David for about 10 years. Now has waited many years, uh, and this evil genius behind this rebellion has a a piece of advice. And I I can't say how many, I can't say often enough that uh, he is dear grandfather of Bathsheba. And so after all of these years, he's like a spitting cobra that rises up now and is going to spit out that bitter venom in the, in, in the most diabolic, twisted, perverted way possible to humiliate, catch this, to humiliate David on the same roof that David violated his granddaughter Bathsheba. That's what he's thinking. We're going to do it right, right where he broke my heart. He's going to pay, but he's going to pay 10 times with the 10 wives in broad daylight. Now, attention, all Ahithophels, all who have been gravely sinned against. God understands you in the original injury. He sympathizes with you, Ahithophel. In the beginning, when you were grieved, when you heard the news, when you heard the news about Bathsheba, and then you heard the, un, the unbelievable news about her husband, God knows what's right and wrong. He judged the incident as evil. Uh, he knows the injustice. Uh, he never excused what David did to you. But he draws a line with your obsessive uh, personal planning of revenge. Sorry. Just because you've been hurt and sinned against in the most heinous way doesn't give you carte blanche to do anything you want and to justify it because, after all, how deep and devastating the hurt was. No, 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 no. Well, they killed, they killed my daughter, or they, 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 um, the drunk driver turned my family upside down. God says, I, I understand. I'm with you. I'm going to walk you through this. That was evil. I'm working. I'm at work. Come to me. Give me your heart. But don't you dare take it on yourself to start taking my job, 
My job is vengeance is mine. I right the wrongs. I take care of things. But if you're going to say, you know, I'm going to be judge and jury and I'm going to pay back and I'm going to make this right. Oh, buddy, now you've crossed the line. And instead, listen, instead of God comforting you and helping you and drawing near to you, now you've got God against you. The very thing, you know, God is now resisting you. Yes, you were wronged, but now you're in the wrong. You, you crossed the line. You could have been helped. God could have been blessing you. God can take care of those who wronged you so much better than you ever dreamed. He's much stronger than you. He's more capable than you. He's more clever and shrewd than you are. He's got it. Nobody gets away with a thing. Nobody. Everybody will stand before God. Whether it's in this life or in the life to come. The universe is just because God is a just God and God is the creator of the universe. Too often the victim of the crime or wrongdoing becomes a perpetrator of something equally as ugly. And unfortunately, instead of God coming to their aid, he has to bring judgment against them. Do not, Paul wrote, Holy Spirit, through Paul, Romans 12, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. It's his department. Where's your faith? David confessed. He turned. As far as we know, restitution. God forgave him. And so must Ahithophel. Oh, it's hard, but it's required. Jesus says these soul-shaking words, and I hope it, shakes you up as it shakes me up. He says, if you forgive people their sins against you, my father will forgive you. Check this out. If you don't forgive those who have sinned against you, neither should you ever hope of receiving God's forgiveness of your own sins. And that's not a legalistic thing where you have to earn salvation by forgiving everybody in your life. What it means is this, that an unforgiving spirit and heart is evidence that the forgiveness and mercy of God and love of God and presence of God cannot possibly dwell there. Therefore, you will not enjoy God's forgiveness. That's what that means, is that somebody who's experienced a lifetime of forgiveness, lifetime, Past, present, and future, all your sins wiped away. And knows that, and has God working in their very heart of hearts with his mercy, and you know the word, and you know the depth of the depravity of your own soul, and how you deserve to be eternally cast away. And yet God is going to make you royalty with him forever. And in that heart of yours, you can have the right to hate And to show no mercy or to be unyielding 
and write people off and wish they were dead and all of these crazy things and slander them and hate and hold on to bitterness? That's not a heart where God lives. (laughs) Now, we all struggle, don't we? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, hey, look, you're not going to be forgiven if you struggle with forgiving people because then none of us would. But he's saying, the heart that resolves itself to hate and anger and hold grudges is a heart that doesn't know me. That's what he's saying. And Ahithophel, wow, we don't know what's up with his soul, but it's pretty serious. So uh, David, David's advisor, uh, buddy, meets Absalom, and uh, Hushai now manages to convince Absalom that he's defected, but the chief advisor is Ahithophel. And so will you notice with me that uh, troublesome people who want to manipulate themselves into power or a position of authority, once they get there, they're lost. They don't know what to do. All through these chapters, you're going to hear, what do I do now? What do I do next? What do I do now? Hey, Where's Ahithophel? Where's Hushai? What do you say? Well, he said this. He's confused. Because he's not a leader. He has no substance. He has no calling. He just covets. He coveted the place, the throne. He's got the throne. Yippee, look, everybody. I'm the center of attention. Now what should I do? That's what he's saying. Ahithophel, I don't know what to do now. I mean, I got what I wanted. Everybody's praise and adoration. Now what's next? Unbelievable. He has no light, no direction, no instinct for wisdom, no character to lead, no substance. Now what? What do I do next? I know how to connive, manipulate, divide, and criticize, but I don't know how to lead because I'm not a leader. I'm a usurper of authority. So verse 21, Ahithophel offers some advice that Absalom just can't resist that feeds into his sick, twisted mind. Let everyone knows who's the boss, who the boss, you the man, go get dad's wives and humiliate your father in broad daylight. Proverbs 17 and verse 25 says, a foolish son is grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. What's the thinking behind this? Well, I'll tell you what it was. Um, This tells Absalom's army And everybody around who sees the sight, there's no turning back. There's no fixing this. David will never be reconciled to that. And he will never reconcile with his father. And so reconciliation's out of the question. Rebellion, therefore, is strengthened because everybody sees it and says, hey, okay, it's permanent. This isn't going to change tomorrow morning because look what he's doing. It's over. He's our king. That's the idea behind it. Just settle it once and for all in Israel's mind. There's no turning back. It's King Absalom. Let's all say it together. Not you, but them. (laughs) Okay, so he's going to finish poorly. It does say that whenever Ahithophel opened his mouth, it was like talking to the Lord. Uh, You could say, Lord, should I do this or that? And it was like hearing God say to you how to fix all your problems. And after all, A lifetime of that, because of a few choice words, you know, he was speaking from heaven, all those words. And now because of a few choice words from hell, all 
the good words and the godliness will not be remembered. It really won't. When you say Ahithophel, you don't think, whoa, godly. You think, was that the guy who thought that up and put that bitter thought into bitter Absalom's heart and caused all of that grief and shame? Oh, yeah. Nobody thinks of how smart he was. Everyone just remembers. So just in case you're thinking, I've lived 25, 30, 40 years for the Lord, and I'm just going to allow myself one little break. You know, I'm going to just let my temper flare. I'm going to just go out and do something crazy. You know what? That's dumb. And you're going <laughs> to... That was. I know that's profound, but it's really, really dumb. Um, I got a question for you. You can think it over. Did it heal grandfather's heart to see his wicked plan on the roof accomplished? No, it didn't because healing doesn't come uh, from striking out in malice. Healing comes by surrendering our hearts before God and letting the Holy Spirit cleanse us. That's the way it happens. So after the fact, guess what? Grandpa Ahithophel is still filled with hate. Maybe even more. That's how it goes. David Guzek on this verse, this shows the power of bitterness. Ahithophel was willing to see these women abused, Absalom grievously sinning, and the kingdom of Israel suffer greatly simply to satisfy his longing for bitter revenge. Now, some theology here. Um, Of course, God's way ahead of the game. So God saw it coming, and it's a fulfillment, the roof thing. The roof thing's a fulfillment. Back in the day when he did the, the deed with Bathsheba, Nathan said, oh, by the way, somebody who shall be nameless is going to violate your wives in broad daylight. Now, God is not the author of any evil. In, in, in him, there is no darkness at all. 1 John 1, 5. But God is free to use anything he wants. And he decided, I'm going to allow that and hold the perpetrators accountable for their sin. That's what he does. And I'm going to use it. He raises up Pharaoh. You know, he does it. He's, God's not evil. He just blesses Pharaoh's intention of his heart. Six times Pharaoh hardens his heart. And six times the Lord hardens his heart. Showing us this. God wasn't hardening his heart without him wanting his heart hardened. Do you see? And so, you know, God is always comes off clean. Now, you know what Ahithophel did now in closing? He has given Absalom... Uh, some lethal advice. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11. It is the death penalty for a son to have his father's wife. So this was the nail on the coffin. I mean, Absalom's already done enough, but now he's under a capital crime. And God's going to take care of that, and he's going to come to a really scary end. Now, in conclusion, the rattlesnakes, indeed, when they're cornered, they bite, and we bite ourselves when we don't get rid of bitterness. Now, who in this room has not been sinned against? There's none of us. 
and you will be. You will be tomorrow. You will be next week. Next month, somebody's going to exclude you from a party. Next week, you're going to hear that somebody said something rude about you. Next week, you're going to have somebody insult you or come short with you. How are you going to handle that? How do you handle bitterness? And when it's really serious. Some of you have been sinned against in ways that would make all of our heads spin. But, but what do you do with that? The cure in the Old Testament, beautiful picture. When the Israelites get to a certain pool of water, it's called Mara because it's bitter. And then the Lord tells Moses, see that tree, throw the tree in. And the bitter water will become sweet. And we know from the Old Testament and New that the tree is always used of the cross. Because he, he, he who had God's curse upon him was cursed because he was hanging on a tree. And that word can mean the cross. Throw the cross in the bitterness. What does that mean? And the bitterness becomes sweet. We identify with Jesus' death. We walk with him in brokenness and in humility and dependence upon God so that while we're in union with Christ who upon the cross is saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We are like that. And so instead of retaliating, Jesus does not. The cross bids us die. Die to that. Do not listen to it. Do not let it get to you. Instead, respond in the opposite spirit, in love and forgiveness and mercy, and entrust that to God. You're not giving them a free pass. You're not condoning what they did. You're just giving it to God and letting God do his work. We need to be united with Jesus. We need to play dead, to trust our lives to God and live in that newness of life where there's forgiveness and mercy and love and the bitter waters will become sweet as we live the crucified life and throw the wood in there. Well, there's somebody here, you know, somebody here that you struggle with. If I ask you, is there somebody you really hate? There's somebody you don't like that you like to just kind of give a hard time to because, you know, you think they deserve it. Who's hurt you the most in your life? Think about it. How do you filter them? Not so much how you feel toward them. How do you treat them? We're not even responsible for our feelings. Who can control your feelings? They come and go as they will. You respond how you, how you react to them, and you're culpable before God for how you act prompted by those feelings. Are you just withholding your affection? Are you slandering them secretly? Are you like nurturing your bitterness and holding on? Oh, I'll never forgive them. You're off. You're off track. Throw the cross in. Get on that cross with Jesus and to enter into the fellowship of his suffering. Entrust that nasty thing to God. Forgive them. Let it go. And let the Holy Spirit just heal you. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful word and your Holy Spirit is just striving with us in our human nature that just resists you at 
every turn, it's so difficult to submit to the ways of God unless by the fullness of God's Spirit you help us. So help us put the bitterness out by taking the cross in to our hearts. Just letting that sweet water flow from your wounded side into our hearts. and Just let us have joy and peace in the place of all of that pent-up fermenting poison. Let us leave it at the foot of the cross and have your spirit wash it away. In Jesus' name, amen.